Consider this. A woman calls her mother to tell her the good news, that she's been accepted to graduate school. Her mother says, don't you want to be married and financially stable before you do that? A preschooler dances happily to their own tune, filled with joy in play and time with friends. The teacher says, they'll never be ready for kindergarten if they don't learn to sit still. A college student cries alone in a dorm room because there is no dream job waiting for them after graduation. An inner voice says, they're going to be so disappointed. A business executive and her staff are on night two, burning the midnight oil to meet a deadline. She says, we can sleep when we're dead. I am enough. We hear the words, but almost everything in our culture tells us we are, in fact, not enough. We need to do more. We need to have more. We need to be more. Ironically, even if you look at the self-care industry, you're told that if you want to take care of yourself, you have to do more. Make sure you have the right skin regimen. Don't forget, if you really want to recharge, you need to reserve your spot at that silent retreat in Sedona. And definitely buy this book to tell you how to get your life on track. Oh, close your rings. Whether or not we like to admit it, capitalism and capitalistic mentalities control the majority of what we do and how we see ourselves. We associate our worth with what we do and what we have. Wealthy or poor, we are caught in the system. And in this system, this toxic system, the forces that drive us are toxic too. Fear, shame, guilt, scarcity. I don't have enough. There is never enough. It's time that we take a step back and decide, if I am enough, do I really want to participate in this system anymore? That's, of course, easier said than done. But to challenge the system, it helps to start by asking questions. I like to ask, who holds the power? Before we tackle capitalism in mere minutes, let's take a look at our passage from Exodus first. If we were to ask who holds the power, verse 8 tells us it's the king of Egypt. But this new king has a problem. The Israelite people outnumber the Egyptians. He has power now, but he also knows that if, he really, if they really wanted to, they could band together, join with Egypt's enemies, and fight against them, ultimately escaping the land. So the king has power, and the king wants to keep power. Now what I find interesting is that he fears not only the Israelites' rebellion, but also their escape. He could try to drive them out of Egypt, but he needs them. He needs them to be contributing members of his kingdom. He needs their labor. So, driven by fear and a desire to hold on to power, the king tried to control them through forced labor. 
Despite their oppression, the Israelites continued to multiply, and the text states that the Egyptians began to see them with disgust and dread. This disgust and dread led to the dehumanization of the Israelites and the Egyptians ultimately shifting their status from people to property and enslaving them. To further maintain control of the Israelites, the king decided to try and manage the population. He did so discreetly at first, calling the midwives in to do his dirty work, killing the male babies at birth, perhaps even convincing the mothers they were stillborn. Maybe this could accomplish his goals and avoid rebellion now and later. The king created a system centered on maintaining Egyptian power, his power. Driven by greed and fear, he used his power to eliminate those that posed a threat to his kingdom. He used his power to dehumanize and oppress an entire race in order for his kingdom to grow. Sound familiar? In her book, Rest is Resistance, author and artist Tricia Hersey points out that the grind culture we find ourselves trapped in, the grind culture that tells us we will never be enough, is rooted in capitalism and white supremacy. It's rooted in the idea that people are worth only what they produce, rooted in a system that keeps the powerful in power. The history is in our textbooks. The history is in our Bible. Where is the power? The power is in the oppressive system that tries to tell us that our worth is tied to what we do. When we listen to the voices within the system, there's no way we can embody the idea that we are enough. Listening to those voices depletes us spiritually and we relinquish our power by giving everything we have to please people we don't know. When power is misplaced and abused, it's our job to resist. When the king told the midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill the infant boys, they resisted. They devised their own plan. They would not follow the king's orders. Instead, they let the boys live. When asked by the king why they were doing this, they came up with a creative excuse that the Hebrew women were just so full of vigor that they gave birth too quickly before the midwives could even get there. Killing the boys would no longer be discreet. While the king tried to wipe out the boys that might rebel, the women resisted and kept a generation alive. The generation of Moses, who would eventually lead his people to freedom. What prompted Shifra and Pua to take such a risk? What allowed them to resist the system and choose life? It was God. Verse 17 says, The two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order. Instead, they let the baby boys live. Shifra and Pua answered to a higher power. What allowed them to resist the system and choose life? It was God, because they answered to a higher authority than even the king. Their value and worth rested in their respect and, re and reverence of God and God's ways.
We don't know what Shifra and Pua's relationship was with the king. We don't know what they had to give up or risk to resist his order and put God and their people first. But we do know it was possible because they put their trust and faith in God over and above the powers that be. If we want people to let go of the power they hold on to and resist toxic systems, what does God's gospel message have to say to us? Our gospel lesson today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible, but feel free to follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 4 of the New Testament section. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying, Happy are people who are hopeless, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve, because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble, because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are people who show mercy, because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. The first thing that Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount was this. You are enough. Others, others will tell you that when you are hopeless or you are grieving, you should feel shame or guilt. I'm telling you, you are enough for my kingdom. Others, they will tell you that if you are humble, you will get nowhere in life. I'm telling you that you are enough. My earth is already yours. Others will tell you that to hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice is futile. I'm telling you that you are enough. I will sustain you. Others will tell you that mercy is for the weak, and those who are pure in heart will get trampled on. I'm telling you that you are enough. I am with you, and my mercy is yours. Others will tell you that peace is out of your reach. I'm telling you, you are enough, beloved children. How does God's gospel message enable people to let go of the power they hold on to and resist toxic systems? We do it through trust and faith in God. God holds the power, and God says, we are enough. Loving ourselves and loving others disrupts systems of oppression. Loving ourselves and loving others means we can let go of fear, shame, guilt, urgency, and scarcity mentalities. Loving ourselves and others allows us to choose instead the way of life, peace, abundance, and community care. And we can do this. We can love ourselves because God loves us. God is who tells us, you are enough. 
It makes a difference when those words come from someone else. One of the participants in our partner with the preacher group this past week told a story that stuck with me. She told the story of being a young woman of 25. She was in a loving relationship with her partner, and they proposed. But this proposal involved a move and would mean leaving behind the other aspects of her life that she valued, and she didn't want to do that. In a society that values marriage, oftentimes over individual well-being, she said no. But that didn't come without grief and self-doubt. Sobbing, she crawled into her father's lap. Knowing her sister was already starting the family her parents had dreamed of for both of them, through her tears, she said, I am never going to be able to give you what my sister has. Then, holding her close, her father said, You are enough. Hearing those words from her father, that changed her trajectory, she said. Hearing it externally changes us internally. So let me say it one more time. You are enough. I say that to you because I believe it, but more importantly, God, our cosmic creator, believes it. We may not always hear it from our families. We may not always hear it from our partners. We definitely won't hear it in the capitalistic noise that clouds our divine knowledge. But resist those voices and hear it today. Christ says, you are enough, beloved children. Hear it. Know it. Let it soak into your spirit. Say it to yourself. Say it to others. Say it often. Imagine the possibilities if we collectively agreed on this simple truth. I am enough. May it be so.